Uh, if you'll go ahead and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to go be starting a new book. Um, Dustin and I were walking around with our kids uh, yesterday, and I was kind of telling him that we we're starting Acts, and he's like, what made you choose Acts, you know? And um, I think Acts is a really good next step. Uh, from Mark. I mean, if, it might be a little better if we were in Luke and then went to Acts uh, because Luke wrote both of those. But, um, you know, Mark and Luke are pretty similar and they're both synoptic gospels. Uh, they tell uh, the story of Jesus coming um, and he's arrived on the scene and his, his life, his ministry, his sinless life, um, his sacrificial death, um, his resurrection, you know, um, but really his ministry continues in the book of Acts. Um, Acts, maybe in your Bible, uh, maybe the top title just says Acts. Um, maybe it says the Acts of the Apostles. Um, maybe it says the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. Okay. And maybe the technically accurate thing that it should say that I'm not sure any of the Bibles actually do in the title is the continuing work of Jesus by the Holy Spirit through the apostles in the early church. Okay, well, that's enough. Okay, so <laughs> no one wants to read a book with that long of a title, right? That's just way too hard. Um, but I love the book of Acts. Um, it is, it's an exciting book. I mean, I think that they have actually recently made like a made-for-TV movie about it, um, but uh, I mean, it, it really make a good feature film. I mean, there's so much excitement in it. Um, I'm a history buff, and so I love this book because it's um, it it's truly historical and it's truly evangelical. I love evangelizing too, so it's like two of my favorite things, right? Evangelism and history. And it's very accurate. Um, I was bummed because I, I started reading John Stott, uh, the great Scottish preacher. I love his books and I was reading him for Acts and um, I didn't have time to like carry over everything I underlined into my notes so that I'd have direct quotes to you today. So I'm going to be kind of doing it from memory, which might be better anyways. <laughs> um, but he had this whole section in his introduction to the book of Acts just about how incredible this is in its historical accuracy. And um, we've recently taught through the book of Acts with the high school ministry. I think we were in chapter uh, 20 when COVID hit um, and haven't returned to that. But um, And then the middle school group was also beginning the book of Acts. I think we were in chapter three uh, when COVID hit. So we're um, recently you know, in the book of Acts as a church in Prineville. Um, it's, it's an important book because it does go through the early stages of church history. When the early church was what was called their darling stage, um, when, when she was in her darling stage, early church, the baby church in Jerusalem, in the region around Jerusalem, starts branching out as you keep going through the book of Acts um, into Judea, Samaria, Asia, Asia Minor, into Europe, um, and the gospel begins to spread across the world. It's super exciting. 
Um, it's so wonderful because you can look up these places and there's ancient ruins today that are the actual stones and rocks that the apostle Paul and Silas and, you know, Peter all stood on. Like it's all actual stuff. Um, it's their actual places. You can get a map and you can trace the route that these guys took on their, you know, paths, you know, on their, on their feet and on the ship, basically, you know? Um, and that's really thrilling. And so we're going to be having a lot of maps and we're going to have a lot of pictures and we're going to, there's just so much good stuff to get into. And I think that you'll grow. Um, Acts is also really good because it's really one of our main sources for what we call ecclesiology. Okay. Now don't, let your ears start dripping some clear fluid after hearing that big word, okay? Um, ecclesiology, if you break it up, you guys know ology from everything else you've ever studied in your life. The study of, right? Um, and then ecclesia or ecclesia um, was the ancient word for the word church. It's where we get our word church from, and it means a gathering, and what it really refers to is the gathering of the redeemed of Jesus throughout all of church history. Everyone who's ever been saved by Jesus is a part of the church universal. Um, and then there's what's called the local church. And that's us right here. We are part of the universal. I mean, there's people that were meeting in Uganda today. There were people that were meeting in Vietnam today and China and Russia and Ukraine and all over the place, all over the United States. We were all part of that. It's awesome. And then you can funnel it down to local churches, local denominations, local places where we gather in the name of Jesus and we give special attention to specific things. Okay. So ecclesia or the gathering today, we're doing that. This is an ecclesia right here. It's a church, uh, the gathering. I just realized my wedding ring was off because I was playing the drum. I'm going to pop that back on there. <laughs> Feel a little naked without, without it. Um, but it's also really good to study ecclesiology or study the church because we are a church. Um, we're kind of an old church with really wonderful history from years past. And we're a little bit of a new church uh, celebrating our one year anniversary at the end of July and finishing our first book. But we're going to be able to get into how the church operates, um, the different roles, the different leadership. Uh, disciplines, the things that we give special attention to, um, what we believe, theology, doctrine, um, all kinds of really good stuff. And it's really beneficial even at this time in uh, as who we are as a church. So I'm really excited to go uh, through it with you guys. Um, we're going to get through verse 8 today. And 8 is the key, verse 8 is the key verse of the book of Acts. It sets up an outline of the book of Acts. Um, and so we'll get to that in, in a few minutes. It gives us um, the hope of the power that is to come to every Christian so that they can live a life of not only obedience to Jesus, but of witness for Jesus and of ministry for Jesus. And, uh, and so if you're already there in your Bible, you can just kind of Circle verse eight, maybe the number eight, or maybe put a little star next to it or highlight it, you know, or something like that. It's, um, it's really helpful for understanding the whole of this book. So let's go ahead and get into it. And I'm just excited. Oh man, I could teach the book of Acts every day of my life. It's, it's really exciting. And 
and the end is exciting and the fact that there's actually not really an end to it. Um, it's been said, so there's 28 chapters of the book of Acts and it's been said that we are living in the 29th chapter. Um, in fact, Hebrews chapter 11 talks about all of the heroes of the faith that went before us. And there's this list of, you know, all the characters of the Old Testament that were just total champions and heroes because they trusted in the Lord. It's been called the Hall of Faith or the Hall of Fame. And, and there's this section at the end that says, you know, man, time, we wouldn't have enough time to go through all the heroes. I mean, they did this and they did that and they stopped the mouths of lions and they stopped the flames of fire and they were, you know, gave their life and martyred them and this and that and the other. And then at the end of chapter 11, it says, and these were not made perfect apart from us, which means all those guys of the faith that went before us, that lived those exciting lives of trusting in the Lord and being used by him, like the Lord used them. And, and there's a, there's not because, you know, it's all because of grace that they have, they have the security of heaven. Um, but there's also that the story goes on. The story is for us as well. In uh, the 29th chapter of Acts, there's actually a church movement called Acts 29 based off of that idea that that's us. Here we are, Acts chapter 29. Okay. Are you guys ready to get into it? You're like, that was the longest introduction. Those of you that know me well know that that wasn't the longest introduction. Um, Okay. I got to get there, first of all. I'm in John from... uh, I'm going to kind of butcher this, but um, there's an old saying, and Lindsay, you know it pretty good, so maybe you can help me out. Um, The Old Testament is Jesus concealed. Uh, The New Testament is Jesus revealed, okay? Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels are Jesus, uh, what's that one, explained? I think, no, 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 no. It's, it's something about like Jesus arrived or something like that. The book of Acts is Jesus proclaimed. And then the epistles are all letters of Jesus explained. Okay, so forgive me, didn't have this in my notes, but the gospels are something about like Jesus, uh, it's, he's revealed, you know. In the Old Testament, Jesus is there, believe it or not. He's just concealed. He's kind of under the veil. But everything's pointing to Jesus in the Old Testament. So um, and so here we are in Acts, which is Jesus proclaimed. Okay? The Acts of the Holy Spirit. Okay, I did find Acts in my Bible. Now I'm getting back there, and I'm sticking my ribbon in it. And here we are. Verse 1. Are you guys ready for this? Are you as excited? Did I pump you up so much? I mean, it maybe put you to sleep, but it's going to get exciting. All right. Uh, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen to whom he'd also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Okay, stop there. Hop back to verse one, where we have this introduction to the letter by Luke, Luke the physician. Uh, Luke was a physician. 
Many people can tell, not only from history that he was a physician, but even by his writings, that he writes with the, the grammar and the dialect of a Greek physician. Luke was Greek. He wasn't Jewish. He wasn't one of the original 12 disciples. Um, uh, but he, we find him uh, being a part of the early church early enough that he was actually a travel companion with Paul through the book of Acts. There will be times that you'll be reading the book of Acts and Luke will be writing and he'll be talking about, oh, Paul did this and then they went there. And then the next thing you know, he's talking in the first person plural that then we did this and we did that. And, you know, and so you, like, you know that he was there with um, Paul through much of his travelings. And so he was able to write from a firsthand um, experience. By the way, if you haven't seen uh, the movie uh, Paul, I think is what it's called. It's like a new, newer movie. Uh, it's really well done, and uh, Luke is one of the main characters as he's traveling with Paul and he's writing about Paul and all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, but Luke references another <laughs> writing that he had made. Notice verse one: the former account I made. Okay, um, so we know that the former account was the gospel of Luke, okay? And I think that Luke and Acts combined take up a quarter of the New Testament. That's a big chunk of, uh, of the whole of the New Testament. And, uh, and so the gospel of Luke, written by Luke the physician, and let's just go back to Luke chapter one and look at that introduction. You're gonna see the styles very similar, um, verses one through four. I think we've got it on the screen for you. Luke 1, 1. See if this sounds like an educated guy writing. I think, it's, I think it's pretty impressive. Sounds almost like a physician writing it. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Like To me, it sounds like one of those doctors right now that's writing about COVID and they're like, we've been doing the research and things aren't lining up, you know? I mean, and I'm not saying like what one way or the other, but they're researchers, right? They're people that are like doing their time, putting in their time. And then they're writing an orderly account of their investigation. And I appreciate that. I don't know about you guys, but Luke did that in his first gospel or in the gospel. And he's like, man, a lot of guys, a few different guys, and he's referencing um, Matthew and Mark. Uh, John's hadn't been written yet, but um, Matthew and Mark took their time to write. And notice he uses in verse one there of Luke. They wanted to set in order a narrative. So Matthew and Mark, these guys took time to bring order to explaining who Jesus is or revealing who the Messiah is as he came on the scene. I appreciate that. This isn't just like, like, whatever, you know, and let the chips fall where they may. In fact, when you read other religions, like it is so vague and abstract and there's no order to it um and none of it makes sense and you like you can't go to those places 
all because it didn't happen. Okay, really at the end of the day. And here you have, hey guys, we wanna make sure it's clear that this is right on, this is true, this is doctrine, which is what is true that can be believed. This is orthodox, and these guys have taken an order to write a narrative of the things that happened. Verse two tells us that from the beginning, all of them were eyewitnesses of it. That's a very important thing when you're laying out a treatise. Um, Luke also was a guy who claims to have had a, look at verse three, a perfect understandings of the things from the very first. So while not being a disciple, he must have been around it all and was an eyewitness of Jesus's ministry and resurrection. Um, now we notice also at the end of verse three, that now he is setting also an orderly account. So in verse one, we see that the gospels are orderly narratives. And then here at the, the book of Acts, um, or I'm sorry, he's talking about Luke. The gospel of Luke is also an orderly account. Okay. Um, who's he writing to in the gospel of Luke? Did you guys recognize the name? Theophilus, which means, um, if you break the, the Greek up, phileo means love or brotherly love. And theos means God. And so it's speaking of like the love of God is what his name means. So uh, Theophilus. Uh, Theophilus is who Luke was written to. And Theophilus is who Acts was written to. So you see the unity um, and the synergy in those books. And uh, in Luke, uh, he was writing that you would know the certainty of the thing. So it's just really exciting for me because... Um, I don't know how true this is, and if it's true, then it's by God's grace. But my friend Adam Poole, who's a school of ministry teacher, he he would call me Rory, the champion of truth. And um, I don't know, I'm not saying that it's like, oh yeah, all I am is about, I mean, no doubt mess up, you know, talk to my wife. She's like, yeah, he gets things wrong sometimes. Um, So you can always test everything that I say. But I want truth, okay? And we should all want truth and just endeavor for truth and be able to like, hey, we can wrestle things out and dig deep and we're gonna, let's just search the truth together, okay? Okay, so um, that's verse one of Acts 1.1. Gives us a little introduction there of there was a, a letter that was written before. We know that was Luke. It's to Theophilus also. Um, it's about what Jesus did and taught uh, or said and lived out verse two until the day in which he was taken up after he through the Holy spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. So we have um, an interesting little segue between the gospels and where like Joe left off with the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, Jesus living, you know, for 40 days and giving a commission in ascending, Joe kind of ended out with that commission and the ascension. Um, and then we're kind of popped back to where Jesus is on the earth again for just a little bit of time. So we're kind of popped back and then Jesus is going to ascend again um, in the book of Acts. So we're kind of having a little bit of review here. Um, but he ascended there in verse 2. Um and notice the importance of the Holy Spirit here. There's, there's almost this Trinitarian statement that Jesus and the Holy Spirit gave commandments. Uh, those commandments were 
the Great Commission. We're going to see in just a little bit, there's commandments to go and wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come. Um, but uh, it was through the Holy Spirit that these guys, the disciples, were charged to go out in obedience. Um, and that was to the apostles at the end of verse 2, whom he had chosen. Uh, these disciples, we studied the book of Mark early on in our teaching here at this church. And we remember that Jesus went on a mountain and prayed and he prayed all night and he would really spend time in prayer before he picked these apostles out. He had chosen them and he had chosen them with this purpose of that they were going to carry on uh, the work to advance the gospel throughout um, the world, the known world and the not known world. Um, so he was taken up into heaven and you can reference on your own time, uh, Mark 16, 15 through 20. You can reference the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, namely to go. The Great Commission is a commission of going. Get out of the comfort zone. Get out of the four walls of the church. Get out of your living room and get out to the world and start telling them about Jesus. Because if we don't tell them about Jesus, then they won't hear the gospel. If they don't hear the gospel, then they can't believe the gospel. If they don't believe the gospel, they can't call upon the name of the Lord. And if they can't call upon the name of the Lord, then they can't be saved and they're perishing in their sin. And so this is a very important commandment that God has given that we go. And like Bible scholars tell you that it wasn't just for those disciples that this was given, that there's a secondary application for all the disciples that would ever follow. That's you and that's me. And I know what you're thinking. Like, that terrifies me, the thought of like, you know, well, guys, I guess we're supposed to go outside and start preaching, you know, and let's just go out and maybe knock on every door in Palina. How many doors are there? You know, or just, you know, man, go down for signs of life or go through Prineville or go on a mission trip. Like, terrifying maybe, right? Like, but that's why verse eight comes in when we get there. You know, because it's not by our own strength, or our own might, or our own power that we would do this. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we'll do it. Um, and uh, at this rate, who knows how much into that we'll get this week. So push it five o'clock. Okay. Um, today might be an introduction week, which, you know, I mean, every good, every good opening to a book has the introduction week. Um, look at verse three. To whom, so these are the uh, disciples that he'd chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So, like when I read this verse, like, my heart kind of like jumps a little bit. Like it's, it's an exciting verse. Um, I don't know how many of you know a lot of people that have just risen from the grave, you know? Um, but it's kind of a rare occurrence, okay? Not only risen from the grave, but say hung out for like 40 days with you, you know? And not only hung out for 40 days with you, but just showed how alive and real this resurrection was by doing all sorts of, I want to say tricks or something, but they weren't tricks, right? They were just, you know, it wasn't like, hey, kids. And they're like, whoa. You know, it wasn't like sleight of hand or anything. 
He was he would eat with them. He would say, "Hey, stick your finger here," and the finger would come out the other side. No, I'm teasing. Um, but you know, poke Thomas. Like, put your hands here and put your hand in my side, and all kinds of just like, let's go on a trip. Let's go eat by the seashore. You know, and spent time with them. And so, as you pull this verse apart, you have he pre- number one. He presented himself alive after his suffering. So we all know his suffering or um, kind of the ancient language was the passion. That's kind of where the idea of the passion of the Christ doesn't sound very passionate to me. That's not what I think of passionate, you know. Um, it was painful. It was that, that suffering of Jesus and not only his trial, but his scourgings and the beatings and the rod to the cheek, to the face, the crowns of thorns, the, you know, the mocking, the packing of the patibulum up to the Mount Calvary. The crucifixion, the nails in the hands and in the feet and, um, uh, you know, the piercing through the side and the blood and the water coming out of his heart cavity, showing that he had a collapse of the heart cavity. Um, and so that suffering, that passion, not to mention the betrayal, you know, the mocking, the anguish, the, the blasphemy against him. Um, and then ultimately his death, the burial of Jesus showed that he was dead. All right. That's an important thing. In fact, when you read the gospels and even you read first Corinthians 15, where Paul tells the gospel again in the epistle, he says he was buried in the ground according to the scriptures. It's important that, you know, he was buried so that, you know, he was dead. Okay. He was put in a tomb. He was put in a sarcophagus. You know, he was put and sealed up because he was dead. But verse part of verse three, first part of verse three, he presented himself alive after that death. And just a couple of verses real quick that I think are exciting verses about him showing himself alive. Matthew 28, 17. I think we've got them. My good trusty son, Russell, entered all these verses in for me. Uh, Matthew 28, 17. It says, uh, yeah, so much for trusty. <laughs> More like rusty. <laughs> I'm teasing. We'll have words on the car right home. Don't you worry. Okay. When they saw him, they worshipped him. So this is after the, this is the resurrection. When they saw him, they worshipped him. I mean, can you imagine? This is like, this is good stuff right here. And I also love that it's just honest and some doubted. <laughs> I've seen some of your faces sometimes when you're like, mm. <laughs> you know, Did Jesus have a twin brother. I'm wondering, you know, um, it's exciting. They saw him. Verse uh, Mark sixteen twelve. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. A couple verses later, Mark sixteen fourteen. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who'd seen him after he had risen. First Corinthians fifteen five through eight. Uh, after that, he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the 12, all the 12. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. You know, in Jewish law, if there were two or more witnesses, it was considered like a done deal and a fact, okay? I mean, imagine witnessing a robbery at 7-Eleven, you know, and there's like three people in there that witnessed the whole thing and they're able to give a detailed account and they're able to say, that was the guy right there. Rob the store, like it's kind of a done deal, right? Um, how about 500 people that witnessed the whole thing? 500 people at one time. 
You know, that's like a rock concert where a guy goes up on stage and does something and everyone is witnessing it and they can all be like, yeah, he totally like mobbed the stage and grabbed the microphone and beat the lead singer with it over the back and started singing the songs. You know, um, everyone saw it and pretty good account of what's going on there. And so there were witnesses to Jesus being risen from the dead. And I love that Paul says, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some had fallen asleep. So at the time that Paul was using the resurrection of Jesus as evidence for the gospel, when he wrote 1 Corinthians, um, people were still alive that had seen Jesus risen. You could be like, hey, why don't you send an email to, uh, you know, Peter the fisherman, you know, or something, or, or why don't you go call him up, see what he has to say about it. And some had died, and some of those 500 had died at that point, had fallen asleep, but there were still witnesses that had seen that. Uh, verse 7, after that, he was seen by James. Um, James was the brother of Jesus, who was not a believer of Jesus. Crazy enough, isn't that? Um, but would later become a believer and also become the main leader of the church in Jerusalem and the writer of the book of James. Uh, then by all of the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, uh, because Paul at the time was Saul and he was an enemy of Jesus may have even been on the Sanhedrin that tried uh, Jesus to death. And, uh, and of course, martyred Stephen and many other Christians. Um, but then later on, Jesus appeared after his sufferings to Paul or Saul as one born out of due time. So I don't know how much uh, Joe got into it when he taught on the resurrection. The resurrection is one of my favorite teachings to do. Easter Sunday, I'm like, you know, I just love to study it. It's been called the best proved fact in history. Uh, one branding, we were uh, over at the Teskey's house after a branding, and uh, Trent Smith asked me, hey, what's your favorite thing to preach on? And I'm like, woohoo, you know? And I'm like, the resurrection. And I just got to talk to the, the Smiths, and there was a whole bunch of people on the back porch, and we just talked, I just was able to share the gospel and the hope of the resurrection. And, you know, the, the resurrection, Jesus himself says, it is like the one thing you can take to the bank. You can bet all your chips on it. If I don't rise from the dead, then everything I've said is, is false. But if I did raise from the dead, then I'm vindicated in all my claims and you ought to follow everything that I said. Um, the resurrection is more important even than the cross. And the cross is important, don't get me wrong. But if there's no resurrection, then the cross, there's just a dead man on the cross, which doesn't pay for our sins. We needed God himself to die on the cross to atone for the sins of the world. And the resurrection is the great vindication of everything that Jesus has to say. It's, it's been called the crowning proof of Christianity. It's been called the greatest proof fact in all history. There's wonderful evidence and to prove that Jesus is risen from the dead. In 2012, I got to preach a message on the resurrection at the empty tomb uh, to a group of about 50 Corvallisites, you know, and uh, that was like, I mean, could you imagine like being a history preacher and being on Omaha Beach, you know, or being in the Colosseum of Rome and getting to talk about that? And there I am at the open tomb and I'm talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Super exciting. Um, but when you get into the eyewitness accounts, many of the critics say that the eyewitness accounts were just hallucinations, perhaps induced by drugs or hysteria. Um, crazy people, you know, religious nuts, you know, people of a cult, you know, um, and, and yet 
students of, um, of, uh, or I should say scholars who study, um, visions and, um, hypnosis and things like that. They say that the difference is that all of the different visions were similar, uh, in what they saw of Jesus and many of them, when you, when you get visions, you know, while you're walking on a road and while you're on a hillside and while you're by a seashore and while you're in a house eating dinner um, and you're seen by multiple people or two people or 500 people at once, then that mass hyst- or that hysteria, all that, it, it begins to be narrowed down to not be some sort of hypnosis or some sort of a hallucination, but that it's an actual fact and that people actually saw uh, what they saw. And so... When you look at uh, Acts chapter 1 verse 3 about how he showed himself alive to these 500 plus people, what you're getting into, if you're fair, is that these were actual appearances of Jesus after he rose from the dead, which is a really exciting thing. Now notice that it says that he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. Uh, Infallible proofs means proofs that are without error. They are convincing proofs. Um, It speaks of like a mark, something that you can see that proves something to you or a sure sign. Okay. So Jesus rose from the dead and gave sure signs. And um, have you ever had to convince, like really try to convince somebody of something like, no, I'm telling you, you know, and you actually have to get like the evidence and like, show it to them, and then they're like, I mean, it's like a wonderful thing, right? I never have gotten to do that because I'm always wrong. <laughs> but Lindsay knows how it is, right, honey? She's always right. Um, now, notice it was also for 40 days, okay, for 40 days. Um, yeah, we celebrate the Resurrection Day, Easter Day, right? Um, but a lot of times we don't celebrate uh, Ascension Day. And Ascension Day is a wonderful holiday because it's 40 days after Resurrection Sunday. And it's a day we celebrate um, like the true vindication of Jesus because he not only rose from the dead, which showed like, okay, guys, so I'm true in what I say, but now I'm going to ascend into the presence of God, the Father. And if I get in there and I'm not like burned away by the holiness of the Father, then it shows that I really did live a sinless life, that my sacrifice really was truly propitiatory for the sins of the world, and that my mission is accomplished. And so, and of course, for Jesus, there's like no doubt, you know, he's going up into heaven. And the Psalms, if you know the Psalm that Third Day wrote about, like, who is this king of glory? You know, and it, and it says something about open up the bars of the gates and let in this king of glory, you know, robed in splendor. That's a prophetic Psalm of the ascension of Jesus coming back in this great homecoming and sitting down at the right hand of the father. Um, but if Jesus wasn't who he says he was and he was just, you know, um, theology tells us that he would have like burned up or something or not been allowed in. But the ascension is a very important doctrine of Christian truth. And so for 40 days, Jesus was on earth and, uh, and yet he hadn't ascended up to the father yet um, after his mission on earth. What did he do for those 40 days? He spoke or was speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He was preaching the kingdom 
Uh, remember when he came in his early ministry and he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the same thing he's preaching after. Um, and at this point, it's a special message because he'd already atoned for the sins of the world. He'd already resurrected. And, uh, and so there was even more oomph to the message of the kingdom. Um, and being assembled together with them. So he's resurrected. He hasn't ascended yet. They're assembled. We know that it was on the Mount of Olives. He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. And um, we're just going to read the next couple of verses and it'll be like a little teaser for next week. Okay. All right. Uh, look in verse six. Therefore, when they'd come together, they asked him saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of God to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. Now, remember, that's the key verse of the book of Acts. Uh, Let's look at verse nine. Now, when they had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Okay, so I wanted to just read those verses. They're a little bit of a setup. I don't have time today to get into the promise of the Father. Okay, so that'll be next week. Joe gets another week without preaching, and I'm going to preach on the promise of the Father. What's the promise of the Father? Um, But before we end, um, it's all tied together. uh, But in the ascension... Because Joe just recently taught that. Um, he begins to ascend into heaven. A cloud receives him out of their sight. You can only imagine if you witness this. I was actually just kind of, wasn't even studying. I was just thinking about the ascension, you know, and how I would just totally be like, you know, and I'm like, I'm totally one of those guys that when I'm leaving a place, you know, I'm looking in the mirror and I'm like, it's getting farther away. It's getting farther away. Or if I'm getting somewhere, I'm like, it's getting, and so I'd be like, I think I can still see him a little bit. He's right there. He's right there. And that's what the disciples were doing until these angels were like, hey guys, like, remember you're supposed to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. You can't stay here the whole time. You can't stay here forever. But they did make an eschatology prophecy, these angels, when they said just as he ascended, end times theology tells us that he's going to come back just in that same spot during the second coming of Jesus that he will place his feet on the Mount of Olives again. And uh, when you read the book of Revelation and you read Zechariah chapter 12 and Zechariah chapter 14, uh, when he sets his feet back down on the Mount of Olives, he'll be coming in victory and he will be defeating his foes. He would have just wiped out the armies in the battle of Armageddon and he'll be setting up his kingdom there in Jerusalem. And a little fun fact, the Mount of Olives will split in two and a great fountain of water will come out and bring a fresh water source throughout uh, Jerusalem all the way over to the Dead Sea in the east and over to the Mediterranean in the west. So 
that was just a little fun fact about uh, when he comes back, just like those angels said. And, uh, and so verse 12 says, they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet. And you just picture them having just experienced one of the craziest things of their entire life. They just watched Jesus ascend into heaven. They just saw angels. I don't know how many of you have seen angels lately. Probably should talk about it with somebody if you have, but like they just saw angels. It's this is big time stuff, Bible history stuff happening right in front of their eyes. And, uh, they came into Jerusalem. It was a Sabbath day journey. Um, I'm trying to remember where I read that they had joy in their heart when they were returning. Can't remember where that was. So I have to do a little research on that, but okay, we're going to wrap it up right now. And I just have to say as much as you can make it to the book of Acts series, make it. And if you miss, we'll have this recordings online and I'll be sharing them on the Facebook page uh, so that you can listen to them if you miss them, because I want you to get the history of the early church so that as we live out church life here in Polina, we do it as biblically as we can. I want you to have um, just a, a history of um, not only how the church is to live and behave, but what we're to believe, what we're to stand on, um, how we're to treat each other. And um, I also want you to have a good knowledge, a good working knowledge of the Holy Spirit, okay? And as we're going through the book of Acts, we're going to really be saturated with the Holy Spirit and studying what's called pneumatology, okay? Pneuma is spirit, ology or tology, the study, the study of the Holy Spirit, um, which is one of the weaknesses in the church today. People just are scared of the Holy Spirit and so they don't even study him. And we're going to be studying him a lot in the book of Acts. So don't miss. And if you have to miss, let's like make a covenant with each other to listen. Okay, we'll try to make them really entertaining. So when you're listening, it's like the funnest thing in the world. Okay. All right. Uh,